research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power. Joined, as always, by Eric Eggers, the co-host of this program, vice president at the Government Accountability Institute, and author as well. And today we're going to talk about one of Eric's favorite topics, commerce. That's one of my favorite topics. That's right. It's a, it's a growing interest of mine. It's a growing interest of yours. I know you're interested in personal commerce. Absolutely. But we're going to talk today about the Department of Commerce and specifically how the Department of Commerce fix it, fits into this larger story related to China. Now, we have done podcasts. We broke the story on Hunter Biden and his ties to China. Uh, my book, Red Handed, focuses on this. Wait, 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 wait. You broke it. I think you're First off, this is not unusual for you to be taking credit for somebody else. The Washington Post broke that story <laughs> just, like, last, just week. last week. Yeah, just, just last, last week. week. You're right. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Newsflash. Hunter Biden. Wait, what? Hunter Biden has business relationships in China? Shocking. Shocking. And if you only read the Washington Post or listen to the major networks, you would think, yep. right, that that this is a new revelation. But we've been on this hunt since uh, 2017. Oof. That's a tough one, WAPO. Yeah, that is a tough one. <laughs> a little bit behind mighty GAI down here in Tallahassee. Florida. Uh, but, you know, we've fixated and focused on uh, the first family of the United States, obviously, because they have the power. But there are a lot of other things going on below the surface, sort of these nameless or largely faceless people uh, that run our bureaucracies that are supposed to be looking out for the interests of American taxpayers. But alas, they run these government agencies, they work in these government agencies, and what they end up doing actually is I would argue, doing the bidding of Beijing. And I think that's a key point because just as if you only read the Washington Post, you might not know that Hunter Biden had business relationships in China. But if you only consume maybe more mainstream conservative news, you might have focused more on the Hunter Biden part of the equation. But I think that's where your recent book, Red Handed, which, oh, by the way, was number one in the country for Thank like you. over a month. You know, no big deal. Thank you. I do get a little bit of a tip every time I mention <laughs> Peter's book sales. But the, uh, but the, the point is, is that Hunter Biden is not really the story, right? I right. mean, the story is Hunter Biden is only relevant because he happened to have been at the time the son of the vice president. He's now the son of the president. Right. But the China piece of it is really the thing. And it's it's a lot easier to focus on Hunter Biden's pictures and all that kind of stuff. But your recent book is literally about a systematic and intentional effort by the part of America's largest geopolitical rival yeah. to undermine our sovereignty, our success and the methods and personnel that they're using to do it, right? So like China is the main character in your book, Red Handed. And actually, we now have a new report at the Government Accountability Institute about the Department of Commerce. And China is a key character in that as well. That's exactly right. And we're going to give you a look at that report today. We're going to talk about Gina Raimondo, who is Joe Biden's Commerce Secretary. She's a former governor. Uh, of and, Rhode Island, by yeah, the way. Yeah, of Rhode Real Island. Real accessible, those Rhode uh, Islanders. And, and, exactly. And But she has a background in finance, and her husband has a very, very interesting and curious tie to a Chinese financial entity that was launched 
by the Chinese government. And then we're going to go back and look at a little bit of more recent history. So she's the current incumbent. We're going to go back and look in the Trump administration. Donald Trump did a lot of great things, I would argue, as it relates to China and tariffs. But alas, even in his Commerce Department, there were people who had, let's say, interesting, troubling ties to Beijing and for that reason worked to undermine uh, the efforts that were being made to really hold China into account to what they're doing towards the United States. Yeah, we actually did a report a couple of years ago about the previous Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, and how he ran shipping companies and how they happened to be beneficiaries of tariffs and exceptions. And that's the thing people don't realize about the Department of Commerce. There's probably a lot of things you don't realize about the <laughs> Department of Commerce. Like, why would you even think about it? Like, if, if, right. even, their, even their current secretary comes from this obscure state. No offense to Rhode Islanders, right? right? But, right. Um, but people don't necessarily understand the role the Department of Commerce plays. But uh, the people that pay attention to it absolutely know because the Department of Commerce is actually the fourth most lobbied agency in the federal government, despite having a budget that's a fraction right. of something like the Department of Defense or the Department right. of State. But the Department of Commerce, because of the 1962 law that allows them to essentially investigate different trends and propose potential tariffs or taxes on external entities, uh, it's it's rife with conflicts of interest. And unfortunately, um, you know, Wilbur Ross, the person before that, Penny Pritzker, I mean, this is just how it goes, the Department of Commerce. Yeah, it's a dumping ground. Yeah. It's, it's oftentimes re referred to as the Department of Cronyism rather than the Department of Commerce. But you're right. I mean, brief history, a Department of Commerce was founded in 1903. Uh, it's designed to bolster and help American business and set standards. And as you correctly pointed out, in 1962, uh, the Commerce Department was given oversight of looking at imports and exports and their influence on national security. Uh, that was during the Cold War. Even when the Cold War ended, though, we're still concerned about this issue is we don't want to have terrorist countries like Iran get access to certain technologies. We don't want military rivals like Russia or China to get access to them. Uh, but alas, uh, there's really been a weakening of these efforts partly because of the lobbying you talked about. And that that really, to me, was a stunning statistic. I mean, the Department of Commerce's budget compared to Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense is a fraction, a fraction, one-eighth of the budget in some cases. And yet it has enormous power to pick winners and losers. And it has the ability to approve or disapprove uh, of technologies or certain business mergers. So a, just a recent development of the Biden Commerce Department is there's a, a bureau called the Bureau of Industry and Security, which helps determine these tariffs. And the Bureau of Industry and Security just gave trade exemptions a few months ago to Huawei, uh, which is this company that people have been talking about in China. What's interesting about uh, Huawei? Well, there's a couple of things. Schweitzer literally pulling out a copy of uh, like that. Let me just tell you about what, <laughs> levels of flexes. Like, I mean, I don't know what happens in your life when you're like, hey, I feel like I've made it. Like sometimes I like to sit on my back porch and look at the woods and, you know, I that, look at my books. Like, no, like, I mean, I've just built a new back porch. I'm like, this is nice. And Peter Schweitzer literally just pulled out his number one book to like quote from as he well. And I wasn't intending to quote. I was using it as a reference manual, yeah. as a Bible, as it were, <laughs> no, as a reference manual. It's uh, the message version. OK, <laughs> thank you, because uh, there's a lot of information in Huawei in the book. But, you know, it's it's really interesting when you look at this company, given these yeah. exemptions by the Biden Commerce Department trade exemptions. It was founded by a guy named Ren Zafengi who's a former PLA engineer. And in 2018, he told his employees that they were to, quote, wage war on the West. And he charged them to, quote, surge forward, killing as you go to blaze a trail of blood around us. 
So, I mean, that's this kind the guy of with Huawei. Yeah, this is the head, the founder yeah. and head of Huawei. So you could say that's a curious motivational speech. Well, I know, um, by the way, as, as it relates to like how how connected is Huawei to larger Chinese uh, you know, initiatives? I mean, they tested the facial recognition software that was used to identify Uyghur Muslims. That's that's exactly right. And Huawei is linked to Chinese intelligence. Yep. You've got this founder who's you know very pro CCP, uh, but Huawei has also been identified as a security threat in Japan. Taiwan, France, Great Britain, the United States, Australia, Germany, among others. The point being, this is a company linked to the Chinese military. Uh, they serve that purpose in their role. The founder is this sort of rabid pro-CCP guy uh, who wants to go, quote, to war with the West. And yet this Commerce Department gave them trade exemptions. Uh, and that is just sort of indicative of the problem. So let's talk about the Commerce Secretary. Yep. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what the relationship is that she and her husband has as it relates to China. It's, it involves primarily her husband, correct? It's absolutely uh, involved is primarily her husband. And I think that's what's really interesting. And just we'll, we'll talk about that. But I think what you're, everything you just said about Huawei, because some of the stats we talk about as far as the lobbying and the clients right. r- relative to something like the Department of State. Because yeah. it, that's what we're talking about, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's almost like the Department of Commerce in some ways operates as an ancillary aspect of the Department of State. Because Absolutely. we're talking about international relationships. Yep. And we're talking about it's a portal by which this business has occurred and it's internationally relevant. So, But just give people a, a sense of the stats on this. The Department of State in 2011 had 674 clients lobby it. Okay. That's, that's stunning. And the, and the Department of Commerce in 2011 had 712 clients lobby it. Uh, in the last 10 years, and the tw- most recent data we have is 2018, the n- number of lobbyists actually went down for the Department of State, the number of clients actually from 674 to 586, but the Department of Commerce went from 712 to 947. So it just shows you, I mean, it's almost like people are realizing this is the way that we will get into yeah. the things that, that matter to us and, and the money. And so, um, yeah, the Department of Commerce is, if it's helpful, it's another aspect of I mean, it's much more international than I think people realize. But so yes. Gina Raimondo's husband is a top executive of something called um, uh, Path AI, which is an artificial intelligence firm. Yep. And he's the chief people officer, which is a nice. title I would nice. like to have. Like, get, tell me you work in Silicon Valley without telling me you work in Silicon Valley. Like <laughs> your company has something called a chief people officer. So, so these guys get funded by something called Danwa Capital. Um, and it's... Chinese Communist Party's connected, right? The money right. basically comes from China. In fact, uh, in 2018, a liberal think tank testified to Congress that Danwa Capital was directly tied to the Chinese government. And according to its f- co-founder, the fund was, quote, committed to narrowing the gap in technological development between China and the United States. Yes. So basically, the husband of the Commerce Secretary works for a company, is the chief people officer. Uh, or was the chief people officer for an entity that is funded by an organization that says it's committed to narrowing the technological gap between the United States and China. That's right. And anybody who looks at Silicon Valley or looks at technology understands that when you've got a state-backed entity like Dan Wah Capital that is investing in companies, particularly in artificial intelligence, it has a strategic purpose. So the question here is, 
drum roll, mm-hmm. do we actually believe that she is capable, given of this financial tie, that she is not going to look look away when it comes to certain activities that China is engaged in? And in fact, there's evidence, I think, already that that's her posture. Um, she said early on in her tenure that, quote, robust commercial engagement will help mitigate any potential tensions with China. This is that old argument that we just need to we need to allow more money coming in. We need to send more goods. There needs to be more trade uh, because it's going gr- to lead to greater peace. We've been doing that for 35 years. That has not gone real well because China is more powerful, more aggressive than they've ever been. But this is the posture that she's adopted. And I would argue you cannot separate the fact that her husband has these financial ties. Well, I think one of the big takeaways, honestly, from your book and from the research that is in this report and from just the story the evolutions are the people that are the biggest proponents of engagement, of economic right. engagement as a vehicle for increased diplomatic uh, coalition and, you know, kind of alignment happen to be the people making money off yeah. of that economic engagement. Right? Wow. Wow. You're suggesting they're actually advocating for something that's helping to make money. But it, but is that not true? Absolutely. It's true. <laughs> I agree. I mean, look, I, I always say it's not cynical to believe that you're a realist yeah. if you believe that, because yeah. that's the way the world works. Hey, even paranoid people have people after them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you see this in the Biden administration. You see the posture that they've taken. Uh, Secretary Armando uh, said more recently, quote, there's no point in talking about decoupling our economy from China's. Um, And what she's essentially saying there is that, you know, no, we're not going to diminish trade. We're not going to reduce trade because, again, she's operating under this myth and this notion. And this is the posture of the Commerce Secretary. Her job is supposedly to stand up for American business. uh, And yet she's taking this soft posture towards Beijing. Yeah, there's there's actually been several instances of which she's exercised a soft posture. She basically allowed, she didn't put any pressure on people uh, leading up to the Beijing Olympics. The Biden administration says, hey, we're going to have this diplomatic boycott. Right. And she's like, well, I'm not going to tell companies what to do. (laughs) They should basically do what they want to do. It's interesting, by the way, at the same time, right? Because the uh, Olympics were in February. And in February of 2022 is actually when her husband stepped down from his full-time role with that company. Company, but he exercised stock options and he became their strategic advisor. And so yeah. one of the things that we say in the report is, is that he um, actually deepened his financial ties to the firm while creating the appearance of distance between he and the company, yeah. presumably because of the level of analysis and uh scrutiny that the Olympics would have brought about at that time. Right, exactly. And look, going from the chief people officer, whatever that means. Hey, brah. <laughs> going from that to a strategic advisor when you're maintaining your ownership stake, yeah. in my mind, is just, it's window dressing. Mm-hmm. You're trying to avoid that scrutiny. So, you know, in some, what you have with the Biden administration is this soft posture. Uh, some of the Trump tariffs that were put in place uh, have been softened. Uh, the Commerce Department has been pushing and lobbying for those. That's important to note. You have these exemptions that are being given, these trade exemptions to companies like Huawei. And this is occurring at a time where the Commerce Secretary has these financial ties to Beijing. And this is part of the strategy of elite capture. Yeah, tell, uh, that, tell people what that is, because I don't think people are familiar with that phrase. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the idea is pretty simple. It's that they want to forge these commercial relationships with people in the West that are in positions of responsibility and authority so they can gain leverage on them. So in the case of Ramondo, if she took an aggressive posture against China, 
this company, this investor in, in her husband's business could say, hey, you know what? We're having second thoughts. We don't like the direction the company's going. Or they could say as a major shareholder, we want this executive, your husband, to leave the company yeah. uh, because we don't like the posture taking. That's leverage and they like it. And I think it's important to draw a distinction because I get this question like, what's wrong with doing business in China, period? And lots of different companies, right, do business in China. I mean, sure. if you go to a store, you're probably buying something that was manufactured right. in China. There's lots of American companies that have restaurants and other. Yep. So I think it's important to draw a distinction. We're not saying it's it's bad to buy widgets from China. Right. I think that there are clearly, as the Commerce Secretary's uh, husband was doing, was working for a company that was funded by things with ties to, like, there's like there's a military component. Yeah, like exactly when the national right. security aspect is involved, like that's where you would draw a line and you would say, that's actually the, the thing that makes it the most problematic. Yeah, that's exactly right. Nobody's saying when, when, when we quoted secretary Romando saying earlier, uh, we're not going to decouple from China. I know very few people who say we shouldn't do any trading with China. The question is, are you doing trade or deals or allowing investments by China that are enhancing their military, their national power and artificial intelligence where the commerce secretary's husband is involved has been identified by president G as the most critical industry where they want to win the race. So by by taking this Chinese money, uh, there are going to be strings attached and they are helping them win the race to the detriment of the United States. And that, by the way, is maybe the most trouble, troubling and problematic aspect of the Hunter Biden story, which is not the part of the story that gets covered, period. But right. with Hunter Biden having this uh, Bohai harvest with, the, with its joint financial vehicle with the Chinese government, some of the things they've purchased have been dual use technologies in America and only sort of using diplomatic relationships to acquire things that you might not otherwise be able to acquire that absolutely have the capacity to increase their military and technological capacity in China. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so we're talking about the new GAI report that's coming out. Uh, it is on the Commerce uh, Department. We're talking about the Biden administration, how they've been soft on China. Uh, the Trump administration was a little bit harder on China. I would say more than a little bit. Uh, but there are also ties there that I think are troubling. And it's important to highlight these, even though these are a couple of years old, because it talks about the systematic nature of how Beijing is operating and how they're co-opting our elites. So this guy named Eric Branstad, he's the son of the former governor of Iowa who became the U.S. ambassador to China under Donald Trump. Eric Branstad was working at the Commerce Department in the Trump administration. Which, which to me is the, the big takeaway, right? I mean, the guy, so the, right. the guy that is the ambassador to China of yeah. the Trump administration, of all the places for his son to work, where does he work? Commerce. Commerce. And I, th yeah. I think that's really, people don't realize it's systematic, it's intentional, and it's not an accident. That's exactly right. And so you've got the governor of, uh, sorry, the ambassador to China, uh, Terry Branstad, who is operating. Yep. Terry Branstad has a son, Marcus Branstad. He's the youngest of his children, who was a longtime lobbyist for the American Chemistry Council, which despite its name, actually has Chinese chemical companies that are involved. And, and he lobbied opposing some of the uh, uh, restrictions and uh, trade agreements that, that uh, Donald Trump was pushing. And then you have Eric Branstad, who at Commerce uh, is advising the Commerce Secretary. Um, but he does something really interesting. What does he do when he leaves uh, Commerce Department? Uh, did he go work for like Ford or any other kind of company? Yeah, that... he went to work for an America First company. Oh, right? no, that's not actually what happened. No, sorry, <laughs> I, I misread that. That's my fault. We may want to edit that out. No, he, in fact, he went to go work for um, a, a Chinese telecom firm. <laughs> he became a lobbyist for the Chinese telecom firm immediately after restrictions against it were lifted. 
from the Commerce Department. That's exactly right. So he becomes a lobbyist and he actually taught, we talk about this in the book, but he actually goes over to China after he leaves the Commerce Department right before, and he's meeting with Chinese officials and he's bragging about his access in the White House. And of course, he joins a firm that has a lot of Chinese clients uh, and he makes good money there. Yeah. And that's not unusual, but I would say one thing that I think is, is evolved, you know, we've I've been working with you at the Government Accountability Institute for 10 years, and I know we always sort of have analyzed the, the, the rule maker becomes the navigator type of role. And one of the examples that we used initially was when Dodd-Frank was passed, this very complex Byzantine set right. of financial regulations, and the people that helped write the rules for Dodd-Frank then left and they cashed in because, hey, we've created this super complex and nasty system, and now we're going to make money. And, and it's kind of it matters because it, it only helps prop up the the wealthy already because they're the ones with the know-how and the access and so it really hurts you know free market competition yeah, essentially it, exactly but i think but we've gone from looking at that that's just a domestic situation to now the people are creating rules internationally and then going and making international money at a time that also continues to hurt not just uh, small American businesses, but American businesses, period. That's right. I mean, because it's become globalized. So uh, the Commerce Department, which is supposed to look at commerce, that's supposed to also help American businesses be competitive. You've got this global money flowing in. Sometimes it involves investments like uh, Gina Raimondo, the current secretary, and her husband's investments. Sometimes it involves lobbying entities, as is the case with Mr. Branstad. You had the situation with the previous two commerce secretaries, first under Donald Trump, uh, Wilbur Ross. Uh, as we point out in the report, he had huge commercial ties uh, to China. He was involved with shipping companies that had major Chinese investments. And Wilbur Ross was criticized actually by Trump himself uh, for being too soft on Beijing. And before him, uh, you had Barack Obama's commerce secretary, Penny Pritzker, uh, who also had these interesting ties. She's heir to the Hyatt uh, Hotel fortune, but also has massive uh, investments where she has Chinese ties as well. Yeah. And what's interesting about both, I mean, what is it about the Department of Commerce and us hiring like super wealthy people to run it? I mean, because it seems like they're supposed to have a private business background, but it seems like it would be, it's just counterintuitive because with those business backgrounds, unfortunately, for whatever reason, come connections to the Chinese government. Right. I mean, but like to, to the point of how wealthy Penny Pritzker was, Penny Pritzker was so wealthy, she like understated her wealth by $80 million. Right. And they said, oh, it was an accounting error. Our yeah. fault. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was a rounding like, error. They forgot to carry the seven to the top of the- I mean, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So the, the, you know, that's part of the problem is, is who you are selecting to run the Department of Commerce. And you end up getting these kind of cronies that are involved in business and, and they talk about being pro-business. I'm actually not pro-business, as Milton Friedman said. Mm. Don't be pro-business, be pro-free market. Yeah. Those are two very different things. Uh, but that's where the Commerce Co- Department has become. And, and rather than standing up for American business when it comes to China, they're increasingly standing up for China. And it recalls a sort of famous statement, uh, President Roosevelt, uh, who uh, was not big on the State Department. He didn't trust his own State Department. And after uh, declaring war on Imperial Japan, he reportedly joked at a White House meeting that he hoped the State Department would at least remain neutral in the conflict. (laughs) Uh, And you can say the same thing about the Commerce Department today. It's, It's a sad comment because we provide billions of dollars in taxpayer money 
to this entity. And this entity is spending more time, I would argue, and working harder to protect China's commercial interests in the United States, which are lined with certain large corporations, than they do standing up for American business in general. You know, first off, I'm proud of you for A, ending with a quote of somebody I've actually heard of this time. I have heard of FDR, (laughs) so nice. But B, it's funny that I didn't know that about his distrust of the Department of State. But if you you know know much about history, like I think about Thomas Jefferson, and you know Thomas Jefferson was the ambassador to France. There's and, another name I recognize. <laughs> a couple of them. <laughs> but but if you think about it, like he was very sympathetic to France. But then if you watch like or if you read any of the David McCullough stuff with John Adams, you know Thomas Jefferson's over there live, living like a total heathen in right. France, like right. kind of doing anything he wants to. So no wonder he's a little sympathetic to the old French lifestyle and French perspective. But it's an interesting metaphor to think about that was what's happening here with the commerce, right? I mean, yeah, that it, was that was old fashioned yeah. elite capture with, this with is Thomas a, Jefferson. A diff- this is new. A different type of intercourse that's happening between <laughs> commerce and Chinese entities, but it's the same concept and ultimately has the same impact on the terms of the mindset and your relational bias. That's exactly right. So the thing to keep in mind is, you know, we were the ones that broke the story on Hunter Biden, and that is all in the news today, and we're very good and thankful for that. But don't think the problem goes away. Right. If Hunter Biden gets indicted, if Hunter Biden goes to jail, if Joe Biden ends up resigning, if Joe Biden doesn't run for a second term, this is a systematic problem. Hunter Biden's emblematic of it because it's the first family. That's why it's so important and powerful. But you have got people in Washington, D.C., from the commerce secretary to employees that work at commerce who end up because they get paid well to do it, end up doing the bidding for Beijing at our expense. So whatever happens, whatever the fate of Hunter Biden is, this fight needs to continue. And at GAI, we're going to continue to fight it. Yeah, I think that Hunter Biden is the vehicle, right? Not the problem. And the problem continues there. And that's, uh, you know, I think what you're doing is propping up your next book, bro. I think, yeah. How can I tell? How can I tell? <laughs> Am I going to do a Gina Raimondo book? That's, <laughs> that might be a harder sell. I think that might be a harder sell. Well, you've been listening to uh, Peter Schweitzer and Eric Eggers on the Drill Down podcast. We always appreciate you listening to us. You can pick up his book, Fraud, uh, about election integrity or the lack of it. A uh, very prophetic book came out in 2018, really predicted some of the problems we had in 2020 as it relates to ballot harvesting, et cetera. And you you can also pick up my book, Red Handed, uh, on how China's strategy of elite capture is working very effectively to undermine us in so many ways. You can also find our podcasts on thedrilldown.com or wherever fine podcasts can be located. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>